Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. It's the weekend of 9-11. You were seven years old when it happened. You were living in Puerto Rico. You moved to the U.S., Florida, at the age of 12, and now you're in New York. What are your emotions like this weekend? Man, um, the crowd, first of all, was unbelievable today. I, I told Javi at second base, I might cry tomorrow. Um, it's, I was like, just think about this, bro. Like, you, your wife goes to work and she never comes back. You know, that's or your brother goes to help somebody and never comes back. You know, it's... There's going to be definitely going to be a lot of emotions tomorrow and today and the the rest of the weekend, especially playing the Yankees and the fans being out here. Um, All I ask for is to for everybody out there to just put your arm around the person next to you and say we we together we're even stronger. So it's God is on our side. How, how do you put into words everything that just transpired over the last four hours? Mike, actually, let's go over the whole weekend. Wow, what an amazing weekend, man. The fans, the Mets fans put up an absolutely show. Um, it was, it felt amazing. I talked about the umpires. It felt like playoff, but hot. Uh, playoffs time is usually a little cooler. Um, so hats off to all the Mets fans and um, the Mets organization that put up uh, – a great um, show um, on Saturday. Actually, the Yankees, too. They, they all got together, and they put something very special. And this weekend wasn't um, for us. It was for everybody that, that fought out there and, and contributed to um, something that's way bigger than the game. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Monday, September the 13th, 2021. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time 
at the thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, now Amazon Music. Pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. Well, what a weekend of baseball here in New York. And I was thinking about coming to you all before the Sunday night game. And I'm so glad I didn't because I've been thinking for weeks about how to handle and do this uh, 20-year anniversary of 9-11 that, uh, despite the fact this is so much bigger than baseball, baseball got looped in thanks to some fortuitous scheduling back in 2001 and a great Hall of Fame player seizing a great Hall of Fame moment in a game that, by any other standards back in September of 2001, would have been forgotten because you know the Mets didn't make the playoffs and it didn't lead to any kind of championship or great moment but uh, as I was thinking about it the only way I thought we could handle and really respect the fact that you can't just ignore you could do a couple things let's just talk baseball you know there's so much 9-11 retrospective that you know what do you need this show for Uh, we could try to do something big and great and get in the mix with any of the other individuals that are out there given their you know take on that individuals that were part of the the process and what have you. But then I thought, you know, I'm not one of those guys that's going to come in here and and do a never never forget and you know talk about where I was that day and the meaning. You don't need me for that. If you need me to tell you all that stuff, you've come to the wrong place. You're down in the the D list of D list when it comes to talking about 9/11 because you could have went anywhere this weekend and get much better commentary than what you're going to get here. But what I did remember, and I said, you know what, this is a time to go into the vault. And the reason that I went into the vault is that back t- 10 years ago, I was doing uh, the NY Baseball Digest podcast that used to have a weekly a traditional radio component on Long Island's 1240 AM WGBB. And I was able to, at the 10-year anniversary, which, by the way, I don't remember there being the same pomp and circumstance that we saw this weekend. Maybe there was, I don't remember it. But I was able to put together a pretty decent show that night on a Sunday night. Uh, it might have been the day after 9-11. I don't remember where 9-11 fell on. But on a Sunday night, I was able to get a trio of guests, which I think you'll really enjoy. And some you may have heard from this past weekend. First, you'll hear from former Braves reliever, local guy, Christ the King High School, Steve Carsey. He was the guy that gave up the home run to Piazza. I had a chance to interview him that night 10 years ago on the 10-year anniversary of 9-11. C.J. Nikowski, briefly with the Mets for a brief, brief cup of coffee. Uh, MLB Network Radio, you can get him on the morning show with Steve Phillips. He also is a broadcaster for the Texas Rangers. He was with the Mets, and he's also a St. John's product. So I thought it was cool that night to get someone who's from the area, was in the clubhouse, might give you, and C.J. at that time was still playing, but... He was a guy that really wanted to be in the media and was be engaging enough to give you a good story, and I think he did that. And then the late, and this is the one that uh, you really, if you're in the in the in the in the audience and you like the New York Rangers and you're a big hockey fan, you'll really like this one. You know who sang the national anthem in the '94 uh, Rangers run to the Stanley Cup? John Amarante. He sang the first national anthem post 9/11, and he, the late John Amarante, who's no longer with us, unfortunately. He joined us that night and gave us his take. So it was a very 
interesting show, a show that I think I kind of forgot about. And then as we got closer to 9-11, I was like, hey, this, this would be a cool thing to do for the audience. The Mets and the Yankees did an outstanding job this weekend, not only by playing three wildly entertaining, competitive, a little bit of sauce in the Sunday night game, you know, some sauce there too, great games. I think the ceremony on Saturday, I was not there, but for anybody that was that I talked to, it was well done. It was tasteful. I thought uh, bringing back a lot of those 2001 Mets, you know, some Steve Traxel I saw a photo of. Looks like they really went for the blast from the past. Engaging with former Mets in history, something that we've talked about ad nauseum, I think, this year on the show, is happening right before us. That's a big thing. Of course, the big name out of all them, Piazza. I mean, here's a Hall of Famer. Give the guy credit. You know, he comes back and he engages and he does all this stuff. There was no doubt he would he would be here for 9-11. That's the kind of guy Mike is. But the fact that he's come multiple times this year, uh, those are things that you don't always see from the team's Hall of Famer. And I know that uh, in speaking to Mike on this show and in preps for other times he's been on this show, he takes this whole alumni thing extremely seriously. And uh, be excited to see how this transpires over the next few years of the Cohen ownership. But after last year where I think sports got put on the back burner because of the pandemic, and then it came back and it was used as a political tool, which I always thought was a bad idea for everyone involved. It's like, you know, you never want to mix business and politics. It's, it never goes well. And, and you, you mix business and politics where maybe some of the politics is shady when you come down to it. To come back... And to really put on the show and interact with the fans in a positive way uh, on Saturday night for a, a very serious event, event that's very personal to maybe some of you in the audience that, uh, you know, are affected directly by it. I, I'm not. I mean, we were all affected by it, but I think most importantly for those in that in that stadium that were affected personally, that's where it really means a lot to them. And, and it'd be interesting to get their take. And if you ever wanted to give me your take, Mike Silvat, talkingmetspodcast.com, no G, would love to hear it because that's for you. It's one thing to be an outsider who was impacted maybe in the area, you know, and whatnot and have a story about the day. But the fact that if you were there, you were watching, uh, if you were directly impacted by having, uh, unfortunately, a loved one in those towers, uh, I thought that was more for you to kind of say, hey, this is a way to remember and honor in a positive way, such a, a terrible thing that happened to this country and to those people on that day. But enough with the solemnness here and whatnot, because it is about baseball here. And like I said, it was a tremendous weekend of baseball. And you heard Francisco Lindor coming in, and we've talked about Lindor a lot on this program. And the theme as we go, because I do want to get to the vault and the, the lookbacks to 9-11 that I had mentioned. But I think it's important to talk about three people that – are, are really kind of being looked at as we go into the end of the season. And the Mets are only three games out of the wild card. Four games out in the lost column, depending if you look at the Reds or the Padres. I don't think that the Braves are a realistic goal, but look, they're five games back there, and they have a puncher's chance because they have three games against them. They are in the race, but I've, I've said, and it's really a kick in the pants when you think about it, if they had just done a little bit more on that final stretch of the Nats and Marlins. They really stumbled there in Washington that weekend and then, you know, at the end. And then, of course, losing two out of three to Miami down in Miami, which they always seem to play sleepy down there. Only think about where they could be, but, you know, that's woulda, coulda. That's yesterday's news. The Mets are in a race. And there are three guys, and I think the first guy that we talk about that are really kind of being 
focused in on as we go down the stretch is Francisco Lindor. And if you didn't see this weekend what Lindor is about, forget about the play on the field. Eventually, I had a hard time believing that he would be a 189 hitter uh, for the entire time of his Mets tenure. He's going to be here 10 years. He's not going to be a 189 hitter. There's going to be ups. There's going to be downs. And for better or for worse, it's funny. We always talk about marriage in terms of uh, Lindor, but it truly is for better or for worse. Everybody's got to live with him. The media, the fans, you know, he is going to be the hub of this Mets team for the foreseeable future. Uh, this guy just wants to be loved by Mets fans. It's so clear this weekend. And, and I don't think it's phony. I think that's who he is. Uh, I don't think he wanted to pick a fight with Mets fans. Uh, I think he was frustrated, of course, with his play. But I also think he was frustrated with the lack of understanding about the enormity of the transition he was taking on. Now, grant, granted, you don't want to feel sorry for a guy making $340 million. I understand that. But every player, and they were talking about it on the broadcast. A-Rod talked about Giambi's transition and his own transition. And you're, you know about Beltron and Piazza. And I could go on and on and on. Even Tino Martinez, who is beloved to Yankees fans today, swing back to 1996, early season, Don Mattingly had just retired. They gave him a hard time. They gave him a tremendously hard time. And um, he even platooned in the World Series that year. And I think his really his coming out party as a Yankee that season was a big hit against the Orioles in extra innings, if I remember, in the early part of the season. I think it may have been Grand Slam in extra innings. So this is nothing new. This This... Baptism by fire between players and New York fans. I, I criticized the fans, and I got some heat for it a couple of weeks ago. I still think that this uh, put, putting players through the ringer is a bad thing. But guess what? When you come out on the other end, and you come out on the other end positively in a big way, I don't think there's any better place to be. It's almost like you've earned your stripes. And I don't know if Lindor's troubles are behind him, because one game could lead to a slump the following week, and, and it's all forgotten, or he makes a big error in a big game down the stretch before the season's out that cost the Mets. But if you don't think that Lindor can make an impact here, both with his bat, certainly with his glove, and with his ability to win over people, because he definitely has an engaging, nice personality. He definitely does. Is it phony? I don't know. I don't think so. I think that there's, like anybody else, a component of him that wants to be liked, that wants to have what he had in Cleveland, and he could get it here, but he's got to be patient because he's got to play well, and they got to win. I mean, that's really what it comes down to, and that's so much more than just Lindor. Again, if you didn't take away a guy that was swept up by the moment this weekend and that basically, in his own words, was saying, I like you guys, I really want to be here, I want us to like each other. This shotgun marriage can work. This was the weekend that it was that 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 he started to see that. He put the chips to the center of the table. And by the way, how laughable is it that the Yankees, who, if you read Martino's book, Andy Martino cheated with this Astro scandal, scandal, were on the periphery of doing their own stuff. And one of the key principles of that situation Carlos Beltran played for them a couple of years before and they're mad because Lindor was questioning the whistling from the dugout and he he styled around the bases I don't like the styling after home runs it's all around the league the gold chains the hats the Mets had the home run horse I'm glad they got rid of that that was I don't like any of that act like you've been there the touchdown celebrations all this modern day theatrics which are 
positioned by the media as marketing and engaging a new generation of fans, I just think is amateur. I think you can engage fans by playing the game well, and you could have pure, real emotion. Um, I just laugh because they took offense. The Yankees always take offense to to when they're on the other end of stuff, but nobody, but nobody's supposed to say anything about them when they do the same thing. The biggest excuse that the media has ever made for the Yankees, and there's been many, is their own involvement and their own sign stealing. And I, I love Martino's book. I respect them. He did tr- tremendous reporting, but he gave the, he, he gave them a pass. Everybody got their own comeuppance in that scenario, except for the Yankees. And all we've heard from them is how they've been the victims here. They would have won a World Series. You have no idea. You have no idea what the outcome would be because none of you have a crystal ball, and there's no way to uh, use analytics to figure that out. So it was a little sauce, a little juice to the series, and this Subway series has missed that for a long time. And if it took this three-home run game and Lindor and who knows what these teams look like next year, because I got to tell you, it's been a long time since I felt any juice for a Subway series. And it, it, it wasn't the same this weekend. It was different. It was more about the 9-11 scenario. But yesterday, watching that game from home on ESPN, that was a Subway Series crowd. That was what some of you who have never experienced 97, 98, 99, 2000, who were too young, that was pointing more in that direction. I can't say it was the same, but it was pretty darn close. And Lindor gave you the theatrics. But he wants to be loved. Now, the other guy down the stretch that I think... As and, and when I say the Mets are in it, I still kind of cringe a little bit because I feel there's so much going on around them in terms of teams in the wild card and being 500. I have a hard time really saying they're in it. But mathematically, they are. And the, the goal, as I said two weeks ago, was win as many games as f- possible, finish as strong as possible. Let's learn about some guys. The other guy that's getting a lot of criticism is Luis Rojas, who I feel like now everybody's like, well, we gave this a try. It's a fait accompli. He's not coming back. New president of baseball operations. Whoever comes in, I'm really not in favor of them turning this organization topsy-turvy and starting over because, again, I feel there are good bones here. And I think part of the good bones that this organization has is the manager. Do I agree with the De La Cruz move that he should have? You know, I believe he should, it's probably the one move this year that overtly, I think, Louis Blue should have walked and pitched the next guy. But, you know, again, his closer has dynamic stuff. De La Cruz is a young player. We truly don't know who he is. Uh, you know, these guys look at things for like, you know, swing plane and other back-end stuff as they prepare for games that you and I have no access to. All we know is stats and what's in front of us. And I still think that that was the wrong move, but it wasn't the most egregious move I've seen from a baseball manager uh, on either on either side on in, in uh, the other 29 teams this year. It wasn't. I, I'm less concerned where people got crazy in Miami about pinch hitting for McCann or Pilar because of the slider uh, situation with the righty and bringing in lefties. I don't think that that's uh, crazy moves. I know people got crazy about taking Lugo out after seven pitches. Well, Lugo has shown me no ability to be physically able to handle multiple innings this year. And if you want any kind of ability to bring him back the next day, you got to keep him to one inning. And Lugo wasn't so great on Saturday night where I would have said, hey, uh, he was a, that was a clean inning. It was a, He got him out of the inning, but he had a line drive, great play by Lindor. I think it was LeMay who hit a nice shot down the first baseline that, you know, entered two the other way would have been a hit. So it wasn't like that was from a process standpoint, a B-A-B-I-P standpoint, that it was a no-brainer that he dominated. The Yankees couldn't touch him. 
not not like that at all. And then he comes out and he pitches last night and, and he gets uh, the win and, and, and contributes big. So maybe in the long run, it worked. And I know what you're saying. You know, Instead of Trevor May, Aaron Loop, Aaron Loop could come in. He's the best reliever out of that pen. Look, you saw John Carl Stanton against the lefty last night. He could hit the ball to the moon. That was the right move. Trevor May has to execute. Trevor May didn't execute. I've watched this team all year. And X's and O's wise, because that's what you're going to fire Louie for. You're going to fire Louie because you don't like the X's and O's or you don't like the fact that he's a boring baseball guy when he answers questions. And because he's not out there with pom-poms like Tom Lasorda or fake outrage like Terry Collins or charming you in the postgame like Jerry Manuel did. All three had their issues as managers at various points in their career. Two of the three were probably bad managers. One, a horrible manager. I'll let you figure out who's that. Um, so, I, I, guys, you're going to throw away a manager. You're going to get another version of the same guy on the flip side. And guess what? At least this guy has grown up with the organization. He has the respect for the players. I don't believe that he's soft on them. I think that you take his demeanor as being soft. He works well with the front office from what we hear. Uh, he understands the game well enough where I think he incorporates the modern game with along with some common sense out there. And other than the fact that he's boring and he likes to talk just baseball with the media, how unprofessional was Evan Roberts? If you haven't heard that interview with Carton and Evan Roberts, how they basically like a whiny fanboy went after Luis Rojas, who answered it like a gentleman and then still was getting grilled. That's just everything that's wrong with radio. Uh, that was why the media doesn't like him. Because he's answering you, matter of fact, baseball-wise. And a lot of people that, people that cover this team don't understand baseball. They're there for WWE-style reporting. And nobody needs that. That doesn't lead to wins. That doesn't give us anything more in terms of uh, an experience than having good, honest baseball conversation like we do on this show. Now, final guy that I know everybody's waiting to look at and really waiting for the uh, the next shoe to drop and the vulture circling is Edwin Diaz. Edwin Diaz got out of another sweaty situation last night. Let me play you a clip from the last Shea Anything podcast with Andy Martino and Doug Williams. I want you to listen very carefully because this tells you a lot about how, and I like Martino, I'm not trying to be snarky here, but he's fallen into the trap here too. This tells you a lot about how they cover the team in this town. What do you do now? I mean, what do you do going into an offseason with him? How do you proceed with this player? If you could trade him, trade him, right? I mean, come on already. Like enough agonizing debates over whether he can make it in New York and people know you're stupid. He's got great stuff. No, you're stupid. He doesn't have the head for New York. Can we just like clear the deck and move on? If, if I have to cover a new GM and, and get used to that, I'd like to cover a new closer, at least, who doesn't change games late and, and make our job more complicated. No, look, Diaz is Diaz, right? We know how great his stuff is. We know how often he's ineffective. See what you can get for him. That's, my, that, that's what I think. So, basically, you're tired of covering the closer. So, you want them to move on because you want a new story to write. Is that what I got out of that? Is that what you got out of that? Everybody looks at Edwin Diaz and I think always looks at the glass half empty. Now, granted, he certainly in 2019 was a big reason why that team didn't make the postseason. But let's also remember that the great pitching staff of the second half that year was not so great in the first half. Let's also remember that outside of Pete Alonso and Jeff McNeil, they didn't hit, hit a heck of a lot 
consistently throughout that season. So yes, Diaz and his blown saves cost them a postseason spot and was, was a big story, especially down the stretch. But there are other components of that bullpen that failed, not just Diaz. Also, I want to remind everybody who thinks Diaz is so horrible that there is uh, a... <laughs> let me try to see if I can get this. There's this idea that everybody else's closer is perfect. And, you know, basically, Diaz is... You know, your closer always is the guy that is the worst in the league. And you look at Diaz and you say to yourself, all right, let's just throw him to the, to the Wolves. Let's bring a new guy in. Start fresh. The last thing we need is to go through this again. I don't care that he has great stuff. I don't care that he throws 100. I don't care that when you look at the, the metrics, and this is important with relievers. As we evolve in this show, we evolve in our analysis. I'm not looking anymore at ERA+. plus. I'm not looking anymore, at obviously, at ERA+. What I look for with relievers is hits to innings, strikeout rate, walk rate. And the only thing that's somewhat bothersome with Diaz is his walk rate. And anybody who watches him knows his mechanics are complicated, knows that he get when he gets off that it's hard for him to get back on. But when he throws that slider, and that slider is good, it is unhittable. And he's hung a few of those to lefties. You saw it with Stevenson in Washington. You saw it in, in uh, Phoenix earlier in the year. Um... It hangs up there. It's like a wiffle ball on a tee, and they're just going to hit it. And that happens. But going into this weekend, the guy has blown six saves. That's it. Six saves. And you say to yourself, well, Mike, you know, if it wasn't for his six blown saves, the Mets would be, you know, take half of those, they'd be closer to the postseason. You're right. But let me go up and down here. You guys all like Liam Hendricks, right? Liam Hendricks has blown five saves himself this year. Yeah, Jake McGee, who blew a save against the Mets. The Giants, probably going to be in the postseason. One of the best teams in baseball. Blew five saves. Braves are in first place. Will Smith, he's blown five saves. Mark Melanson, Padres, he's blown five saves. Araldus Chapman, across town, he's blown four. Nearly blew one on Saturday night. Do I need to go on? The 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 the, the Yankee fans, they love Jonathan Loisagatla. Am I going to say his name right? Loisiaga. Loisiaga. He's blown four. All of a sudden, he's the next Mariano Rivera. I mean, do I, do I need to go on here? And I'll even look up Hendricks here because... Uh, let me make sure I got the name. The, the, the only guy here that uh, I think has, has had a year where you could say he's been perfect uh, is Josh Hader. That's really it. Yeah, Liam Hendricks. Six saves. He's blown as many as... Edwin Diaz. Josh Hader's only blown one. By the way, that was against the Mets. So he's having one of those years. But he's had his his seasons in the past where he's blown saves, given up home runs, and whatnot. The point here is everybody's closer annoys them. Every team, every guy who does this show for every team in the league that's in contention could make a gripe this year about their closer, except for the Milwaukee Brewers. And sit back. Let's see what the postseason brings for the Milwaukee Brewers. Oh, don't like those numbers? Don't believe in them? Think that I'm, um, I'm, I'm being soft on Diaz? You want to know the all-time leader for a single season in blown saves are? Well, 14. You know who one of those – there's a bunch of them that did it. You know who one of those pitchers are that blew 14 saves in a single season? Raleigh Fingers. Like Dave Rigetti, really good closer. Rather him than Edwin Diaz, blew 13 saves in 1987 in the peak of being one of the best closers in the game. Oh, still don't buy into it. Goose Gossage. 
You know him. Hall of Famer. Blew 13 saves for the Yankees in 1983. Need to go on? Lee Smith, Hall of Famer. 12 saves for the Cubs in 87. Dan Quisenberry, 1985. When they won the World Series, he blew 12 saves. Brad Lidge, Phillies won a World Series with him in 2009. Not in 2009, in 2008. He blew 11 saves, had issues. I remember that. I could go on and on on this list. Jeff Reardon uh, with the Twins when they won in 1987. There's other goose gossages. 1984, he blew 11 saves. Padres went to the World Series, won a pennant. Just go to baseball reference. It's all there. So you know what my point is? My point is, I know Diaz is not a clean inning. And he was, again, shaky yesterday. Walked the batter, threw a wild pitch, I believe. Um, you know, gave the hit. Sometimes his hits are, are little dinks here and there. He makes you uncomfortable. But so do the closers for most other teams. Because guess what? The stakes are high. Everybody's focused. Everybody's tensions are up. There's no giving away at bats. And maybe the, 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 the opposition focuses a little bit more and plays the strike zone a little bit more. There's a lot of factors that go into the ninth inning that are not just, you know, numbers on a page. All I know is this. The Mets have a guy that doesn't give up a lot of contact. And the difference between success and failure really lies on him. It's not like the old Johnny Franco where the some team will put the ball in play, it'll take a bad hop, or the fielders behind him will make an error. If Diaz is on, they aren't hitting him. And I can't say that for the Melansons and the Will Smiths of the world. I don't watch enough of Liam Hendricks, but he looks like a pretty dominant reliever. But he blew a pretty big save in front of a national audience in the Cornfield game, the Fail the Dreams game, just a couple of weeks back. So I know all of you, the media is tired of Edwin Diaz. The fans, you're waiting for the other shoe to drop. You're going to blame him. You say, I don't believe in him in a postseason game. And those are all fair. But guess what? You don't know what the other side looks like. And I promise you, short of Mariana Rivera being reincarnated in a Mets uniform as a young 23-year-old, every reliever in the ninth inning, whether they're a member of the team now or someone that they'll bring in will be annoying you, and we will be having this conversation, and you will want to replace them. It happened every year with John Franco, and he was here a long time. Billy Wagner, everybody remembers him fondly. He blew saves. You guys didn't like him either. Juris Familia, he was pretty sweaty at times. So let's just sit back. Let's see where this team goes. Let's stop trying to point to one person or a group of people as the reason why they're 500 and they're not as good as what we wanted them to be. They are in the situation where they are. And as I continue to say time and time again, the situation they're in based on everything that has happened, not projections, they're pretty much where they should be. A 500 team that's had a lot of injuries, swings of underperformance, but has been saved by really good defense and a bullpen that's been very good and a few players that have been able to, you know, carry the load when it comes to the offense. Now the offense is clicking. The offense is starting to come together. You're starting to see its potential. Different conversation. And I'll tell you what, and I'll leave you with this before we get to the 9-11 portion of the show. Javi Baez, who wasn't a guy that I was overly excited about after the deadline. The more I watch him, the more I see how good he is, and the more I'm intrigued by a Baez-Lindor tandem going forward and I'm not and I don't know if this is true it could be total coincidence and it's a conversation much lengthier conversation for another day but has Baez's presence helped Lindor be interesting to see 
All right, let's take a quick break. When we return, rapid fire, you're going to hear from Steve Carsey, who gave up the home run to Mike Piazza, former member of the Atlanta Braves, local Christ the King product. CJ Nikowski, also a local product, former big league pitcher, MLB Network Radio, cup of coffee with the Mets, but St. John's product that that knows the area and was part of that 2001 team. And then we'll round it out with a non-baseball guest, but a fun guest, John Amarante, the late John Amarante. You know him from singing the national anthem during Rangers games. These guests all joined me back in September of 2011 for the 10-year anniversary of 9-11. This is the vault, the old Mike Silva vault coming back out of, we're dusting the, the mothballs off the uh, the tape from my 10-year anniversary of 9-11, 12.40 a.m. WGBB show back in September of 2011, 10 years ago. All right, we'll take a quick break. We'll be back with more right after this. Lopez wants it away. And it's hit deep to left center. Andrew Jones on the run. This one has a chance. Home run. Mike Piazza and the Mets lead 3-2. to Let's get to it. And I have with us now a uh, former Yankee. He was a member of the Atlanta Braves. He uh, pitched in that game on uh, September the 21st, 2001. It's been a while. He hasn't been on the baseball grid in a while, but he's joining us tonight. I have with me Steve Carsey. Steve, how are you tonight? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. So you've been you've been out of the baseball uh, line for a while. It's been about five years. Now you're, you're into aerospace. What are you doing out in the West Coast? Uh, yeah, I joined, uh, I joined my friend's company in... Uh, I'm, I'm doing some aerospace manufacturing out uh, out west in Arizona. So uh, it's an interesting business, and uh, it's something that I've always been interested in, you know, during my playing days, prior to my playing days, and uh, it, it's just a lot of fun. Now, you've been on the television all week here in New York because you gave up, obviously, that home run to Piazza. You're on the other end, but you're a local kid. You're from Queens. Uh, ten years. It's got a. It's it's for me. It's weird. Ten years, and I'm you know looking back and remembering watching that game. For you, I mean, what are some of the thoughts that have been going through your head as you've been doing interviews and and obviously seeing yourself on the highlights? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's been quite a while actually, uh, but it, it, it seems like it went so fast. Uh, you know, it's it was it's just a, it's just a time to reflect on on what happened that day, what happened in that period in in all of our lifetimes. Uh, with the tragic event that had happened, but uh, you know, it, it was a special moment. I think in in baseball in general and baseball history, uh, you know, that that happened. Uh, I think that the the stars aligned, and and it was just meant to be um, at that particular time in baseball for for Piazza to to hit a home run. Now you weren't, weren't even in the National League when the year started. You were with Cleveland. You you got traded into a pennant race. And I, I don't, you know, again, this could be announcers, fans' point of view, but these are two teams that really, for a while, didn't like each other. I don't know if you were into that rivalry because you were just there, you know, a few weeks. But it's ironic that it was the Braves and the Mets because that wasn't a rivalry that was it was contentious at times. And then here you guys are shaking hands before the game and and playing almost like not a Sunday softball game, but more of a friendly atmosphere than those two teams were used to. Yeah, it, it was it was definitely a. Uh, uh, different day as far as uh, approaching a game um, you know uh, I, I think in in our minds baseball came second on that day uh, you know our our, our hearts and, and prayers were with the families and uh, of the victims and, and all of the people who had 
had perished uh, 10 days prior to that. So um, we all knew, obviously, we had a job to do. We get paid to go out there and compete. But for us, it was it was one of those things that we kind of knew, you know, as Americans, we're, we're all together in this. And uh, if we can do something to, to, to lighten the moment for, for just a few hours to, to give people some joy and take their minds off of, of the terrible things that have happened, uh, you know, that, that, would, that would be perfect. Now, you have a personal connection because one of your, I think it was your, your I was reading your high school catcher was one of the responders. Am I correct? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, my high school catcher, he was uh, a Port Authority policeman at the time, and he was uh, stationed down at uh, One World Trade where their offices were, and, and uh, you know, he he was not there at, at that particular time and that particular day. He was he just had a court case in New Jersey that he had to attend, and uh, but definitely became one of the responders and, and, and really, uh, you know, was, was there for a very long time after, after the attacks. As someone who grew up in this city, you, you know the Mets, the Yankees, you grew up around that environment. When you came into that game, I mean, do you remember it vividly all these years later? Were you nervous? Or, and I've heard some players say that because of the surreal nature of the event, it was kind of a blur, and, and you're like almost looking at yourself for the first time when you see a replay. Yeah, you know, I, I I remember it very clearly. Uh I wasn't nervous coming into the game. I, I just know that that there were a, a lot of emotions when I was warming up uh you know, after we had just taken a lead in in the top of of the 8th inning 2 to 1 and uh you know, I was thinking to myself, uh you know, I had I had sadness, I had anger for what had happened. I had uh you know, I had I had I still had that competitive nature knowing that you know, the, the Mets are right behind us in this pennant race, and, and I have a job to do. And I tried to put all my emotions to, to the back burner, um, you know, for the 15 or 20 minutes that I was going to take the mound and, and try to do my job the best I possibly could, uh, you know, to, to propel us forward towards the playoffs. Now, you actually you walk Alfonso, and Piazza was recently talking about that at bat, and, and you threw him a fastball that he took. And he thought basically that was the pitch, and um, and you threw another fastball. Uh, is that was that a mistake pitch? Did you knew it was gone? Was that one of the situations where you're like, "Geez, I, I wish I could get that one back the minute it leaves your hand." Absolutely not. You know, I mean, I, I wasn't I wasn't too pleased with a couple of the pitches earlier to Alfonso. I thought I'd thrown some good pitches, um, and, and unfortunately, at that point, walked him, and then. You know, when Mike stepped up, uh, you know, Mike was having a great year at the time. He was, he was, uh, you know, in his prime. He was, he was hitting home runs and, and I knew I had my hands full. Uh, you know, but, uh, I, I wanted to approach it as any other game, uh, that I would try to pitch to, to Piazza. Uh, going into that game, I remember, you know, just, uh, from seeing some stuff on TV that, yeah, he 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 had been one for four against me. It wasn't you know too many at bats he had seen me, and I just wanted to go by the book and try to try to pitch him down in the way and not give him anything that he could pull. You know, if he if he had hit a home run in the right field, uh, you know, you obviously tip your cap to him because uh, he would put a good swing on it. I thought it was a, you know, I've seen it a few times, so I, I thought it was a fairly good pitch. Uh, the first pitch to him was was the fastball, pretty much down the middle, strike. I wanted to get ahead of him, and then. Uh, you know, I tried to go a little bit further off the plate, uh, and and you know, he I, obviously he was he was sitting on fastball, and he put a really good swing on it, got his arms extended, and 
uh, and hit the ball to pretty much dead center field uh, for the home run. And with me, former Atlanta Braves pitcher. He was on the mound uh, during that September the 21st uh, game in 2001, Steve Carsey. Now, I read you were, throw, you were kicked out of that game at the end of the inning. That's something I didn't know. I was, I was reading an article that I guess you had done an interview with Yahoo Sports, and uh, you argued the balls and strikes, I guess, like you just mentioned to Alfonso, and you were tossed at the end of the inning. That's correct. Uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, again, there were a lot of emotions flying that night. Um, you know, the, the competitive nature inside of me, uh, you know, I didn't want to lose that game. Uh, you know, I felt my teammates were counting on me. And, uh, you know, we're, 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 you know, played the whole season. And you're, you know, uh, the unfortunate incident that had happened, uh, the job to do was to go out there and, and, and do my best and, and, and pitch my tail off. And, you know, that's what I tried to do. And, and at that particular point, you know, the, my competitive nature got the best of me, uh, you know, argued a couple balls and strikes with Wally. And then after the end of the inning, uh, you know, said a few words to Wally. He didn't enjoy that so much and ended up tossing me out of the game. Right. And, and that's a big moment because you had just gotten trade. And this is where you're in a tough spot because, like you said, it's a, it's a moment where you guys are trying to, you know, work together, heal the city, but you want to win. You're closing. You're getting an opportunity now on a big stage. And is that the one game that, not that you wanted to lose, but you walked away and said, you know what, it's not the end of the world, even though you were in a pennant race with the Mets, that it sounds like you guys, listening to Chipper Jones and some of the other guys on that team be talking this week, you aren't terribly upset about losing that game in comparison to what it would have normally been if not for the situation. Absolutely, you know, and, and, and I've always said this, uh, reflecting back and looking back on it, um, you know, knowing that we went to the NLCS and made the playoffs and whatnot, I said, if there's any game that I ever had to give up a home run and I ever had to lose, that would have been the game I would have chosen over my career. Uh, and, you know, fortunately, that's the, really what happened is I gave up the home run and uh, and I ended up getting a getting a loss in that game. So if, like I said, if that was the if that was the one game I would have to go back and choose out of any of my uh, outings, that would have definitely been the one. Now a couple of years later, you you go to the Yankees. I believe you signed a free agent deal. You even got the chance to close a little bit when Rivera was out. You had a really nice year. Now I know you, during the terms of that contract, you got hurt and, and you had some arm problems throughout your career. But that uh, 2003, I believe, season was a pretty good one for you. What what did you take away coming back to New York, pitching well, pitching in front of obviously your friends and family? Did it, was that a kind of a, a special moment in your career? It was. You know, 2002 was the year you're talking about. Sorry. I really had, uh, you know, though, it really had uh, stepped into, you know, what I wanted. Uh, you know, I had opportunities as a free agent to go to other other teams and close. But, you know, at that particular time uh, in my career, I felt, uh, you know, the Yankees were, were my best option to go to to set up Mariano Rivera and to have a chance to win a World Series. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, things happened the way they did. But in 2002, we lost to the Angels in the first round. And then, uh, you know, 2003 in spring training is, is when, uh, you know, I, I tore my rotator cuff in spring training and, and just never was able to, to rebound and, and, and get uh, back to where I was prior to that injury. And you had you, you walked away from the game, and, and obviously you didn't want to, but you had arm problems. You, you pitched a couple of scoreless innings, uh, and, and you were back home in Oakland uh, where, you, where it started at all, and you just decided to hang it up. What happened that night? You just you, Your arm just couldn't get it done anymore, and you, would just, you, would, you, you had it. What was around those events where it was the middle of the season and you just said, listen, I can't do this? 
Well, I, I was, uh, you know, I, I was thinking about it for uh, a few weeks prior to that, maybe maybe a month prior to that. Uh, you know, like I said, my, my, my shoulder had never rebounded to where I felt comfortable uh, pitching out of the bullpen on an everyday basis or an every other day basis. And, uh, you know, my, my shoulder was, my shoulder was was basically uh, my rotator cuff was torn again, uh, as I would find out later on. So I was pitching all of 2006 from spring training on with a torn rotator cuff. Uh, so I'd have to come to the ballpark, you know, you know, extra early to to prepare and to get ready. Uh, and and it was just a grind. And it wasn't it, it it wasn't becoming fun for me to come to the ballpark on an everyday basis. And I told myself. If I ever got to the point where baseball wasn't fun anymore, you know what? I, I wasn't just going to hang around to collect a paycheck. I was going to, you know, tell myself, uh, you know, if, if this is if this is the end of the road, then this is the end of the road. And and uh, I felt like I I, I gave a hundred percent every time I stepped out of the mound to to compete. So um, before I let you go, you're on Twitter. I know that you interact with the fans a little bit. Um, you like interacting with the fans and, and hearing some, I guess, chat with them about stories and memories and things like that. Absolutely, it's it's you know, um, you know, Twitter being fairly new and wasn't wasn't there when when I was playing the game and uh, you know nowadays it's it's really nice to interact uh, with the fans and and kind of get their thoughts and. And, and their knowledge of, of what they're thinking and in different situations and uh, you know it's just a, it's a fun thing the social networking to um, to get an understanding like I said of, of what other people besides people in the game think about uh, you know your play and I'll tell you one quick funny story before you go I was just to make sure I had all my facts straight I was doing some research on you you Google and Somebody is selling a picture of you on eBay from Christ the King High School, a yearbook picture for forty nine ninety nine. Did you know that? Uh, you know what? <laughs> I, somebody had sent me something like that and told me that that was the case, and uh, you know it's ironic because I think uh, I think that yearbook. Well, I don't think I know that yearbook also has Khalid Reeves in it and uh, and Derek Phelps, who who I went to high school with and graduated wow. with. Wow, that's ironic. Well, listen, Steve, thank you for a few minutes of your time. Uh, nice catching up with you, and, uh, and keep yourself well, and, and thanks a lot again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Take care. That's uh, Steve Carse, a uh, former pitcher for the Atlanta Braves and uh, New York Yankees, and he was a member of the Atlanta Braves, giving up that home run to Mike Piazza in uh, 2001. Hey, let's take a quick commercial break. We hope to have C.J. Nikowski with us when we return. And that was former big league pitcher Steve Carse getting the point of view from the other side of the field. Steve Carse, who gave up the two-run home run to Mike Piazza. Interesting stuff. Ten years ago, 20 years since 9-11, 10 years ago that I had that special edition of this, what used to be you know, NY Baseball Digest. Uh, back then, special edition of this program on 1240 AM WGBB. Also joining me that night... A guy that only pitched in five games, I believe, that year, but a New Yorker as well, St. John's University, and I thought a guy that uh, was still playing at the time, but was starting to make his rounds in the media. He is now a member of MLB Network Radio. He's an announcer in Texas for the Texas Rangers. C.J. Nikowski 
and CJ shared his thoughts about coming to New York, being part of that Mets team, and that historic game on September 21st, 2001, 10 days after 9-11. Other point of view, a member of that 2001 Mets team, and he's joining us now. He was there only a month, but he's a local guy. He went to St. John's, grew up in New Jersey, and spent the uh, the month of September 2001 with the Mets. It's uh, CJ Nikowski. CJ, thanks for calling in on this uh, late hour. How are you today? I'm doing good, Mike. How you doing? N- not bad. So um not sure... Uh, if you've been following um, what's been going on, I know that the the, the Mets uh, were supposed to wear some of the first responders' hats. Um, the league kind of put the kibosh on it, and you were part of the team that uh, actually you know went out there and you guys decided to uh, go against MLB, wear the hats, and, and wore them that whole month of September. I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that, and since you were part of a team that had the same situation happen to them. Yeah, I mean it's a little bit different. I think obviously because of the time, but. Um... I mean, certainly, I think there's a good reason to be kind of irritated by that. I think that it's it's reasonable for the guys to do that, man. I mean, it's a special time, a 10-year anniversary of, you know, it's one of the worst times in our country, uh, and, and a good time to remember all those that, that passed in it. Um, it would have been nice to do it. It's kind of surprising, you know, and MLB just has some, some rules that they're sticklers about, man. Um, you know, but, you know, at that time for us in 2001, you know, it's just one of those things where you heard it and you're like, kind of like, yeah, whatever. You know, I mean, it wasn't, there wasn't a lot of thought put into it. Nobody was concerned about any kind of repercussions that were going to come from it. Uh, you know, led by guys like Todd Veal and Bob Minter and Johnny Franco. And those guys were just, it was kind of a no-brainer. And, um, you know, nobody, there was nothing in MLB or anybody else was going to do to not let that happen. Now, for you, it was kind of a whirlwind month. You were traded from, I believe it was Detroit. You came early September. You're thrown into a pennant race. And, uh, you know, basically you go from being out of it into it, and then you have these events happen. And uh, talk about that period of time for you professionally and with all this stuff going on, being that you're from the area. Yeah, it was uh, kind of a wild time personally for me. Uh, and unfortunately, I wasn't, I wasn't personally affected by any, didn't lose anybody that I knew, uh, you know, in 9-11. But, yeah, you know, things had kind of gone sour for me in Detroit and got traded over to the Mets, which was real exciting for me just because I was a local guy, like you said, to, to have my opportunity to, to put a home uniform on for the first time was really exciting. Uh, my second child, my daughter, was born just in uh, late August, and so she wasn't even you know, a week old when I first got traded over there. Uh, it, you know, it was an exciting time for me, and, and like you said, when I got there, we were actually, I want to say, maybe seven games under 500 and, and pretty much out of it, and then all of a sudden we started playing really well. Uh, I didn't get a, a ton of opportunity to pitch, but when I did, I, you know, I did pretty good. I like to joke about the fact that, uh, you know, I still hold the Mets career uh, lowest CRA. Even though I went pitching five games, I didn't let up any runs. So at least, uh, at least I'm tied with somebody. Right. Uh, you know, it was, it was, that was a nice moment for me, you know, to come back home and pitch. And then all of a sudden, you know, just a, just a crazy event um, that takes place that really nobody was prepared for. It, it was a whirlwind for sure. And uh, I never never done a good job or never been able to quite come up with the right way to describe it you know was you know for me it was fun to be home but certainly a, an unusual time and um you know people say what's it like to have been on that team at that time and you know it, it's just it's hard to put into words because i don't know if there's a right word to say or a right way to describe it i mean i was glad i was there i guess to be to be a part of it and to be home at the time but you know i certainly wish it never happened yeah I, I, absolutely i with me cj nikowski he was a member of that 2001 mets team you know, Bobby Valentine was on the ESPN broadcast tonight talking about it, and, and you guys, all of you, really stepped up. Um, you knew this was more than just about being, you know, baseball players. And you know, Steve Phillips is even sharing a story, and I don't know if you remember this, but he talked about how even in a um, clubhouse meeting 
where you guys were trying to figure out how to go back and, and get out of Pittsburgh, how Vance Wilson stood up and I guess some guys were complaining. He's like, look, we can't talk about being inconvenienced here. We have to do the right thing. You, you guys really understood, you know, this was a little bit bigger than the game of baseball. It was, man. I mean, it's again, it's a no-brainer. It's you know, it, it doesn't take much. Um, you know, certainly you're dealing with a, a different caliber of people, not necessarily myself, but some big stars in that room that are used to being treated really well. And, and in some respects, you know, I don't say above everybody else, but in some regards, you know, they live a different lifestyle. They're used to the comforts of life, and uh, it didn't take long at all for everybody to kind of, uh, you know, kind of come back to earth and say, you know, hey, we're, you know, we're all kind of in the same boat here. We need to chip in and, and do our part, whatever that is, you know, whatever it was going to be. Um, and, it, and the team, was, that was a great team, man. I mean, I, like you said, I was only there for a month. But what a great group of guys. And um, I think, you know, I haven't heard anybody talk about this yet. You, don't, you never want to get into the monetary stuff. But one of the things that was really neat that our team did, I don't remember if this was publicized or not, but we made a decision as a team, as a team everybody's going to give up one day salary. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, you're talking about some big numbers for some guys. Right. I mean, you're talking about what would, what would equate to a year's salary for a lot of, you know, for some people. And uh, so we had all had done that and, and given up a day's salary and, and, and went to whatever it was at the time, you know, something to help out, you know, victims of 9-11 and families and stuff, which I thought was really cool. And uh, it, was, it was a good group of guys. I mean, my first experience playing in New York and, and doing it for the Mets in 2001, even for that, you know, for that one month, or it turned out to be a month and change because the season got pushed back a little bit. Um, it, it was a good group, man. I'm, I'm glad I got to be a part of it in that, in that short time. Yeah, and even with one day salary for some of the guys making the minimum, that hurts. So you got to give them credit because, um, you know, it's easy, you could say, for a Piazza, for a Ventura, but for guys that are making the minimum, you got to give them credit for going along with that. It's a lot of money, man. When they, when they put that, I remember Ventura kind of, you know, making just a little bit of a half a joke because you had to sign off on it. And so they sent you this thing and said, hey, here's your daily salary. And he was like, oh, he's a <laughs> just wait a minute, all this. You know, kind of joking. Of course, he gladly did it. And I'm sure knowing a guy like him, he did a lot more. But you're right, man. And especially then, you're talking about 2001. The minimum was maybe 150 back then, if, if, if that, um, or right around there. So, yeah, for guys that were, you know, up and down guys, or you know, you know, it definitely they felt it a little bit more than some of the big boys did for sure. What about, I was just talking to uh, Steve Carson. He gave us kind of the other side of the coin. He was on the Braves. What are some of your memories of that first game back, Mike hitting the home run? I don't think you appeared in that game, but uh, being out in the bullpen and being part of that. Yeah, again, man, like trying to come up with the right word to describe it is tough um, in light of everything that was going on. But it, it was a special moment, man. It really was to sit out there. Everything that had happened, um, you know, just between the, the pregame ceremonies and, and – uh, you know, the singers that they had and all that. It was just, I mean, they just did such a good job the way they presented the whole thing. So everything that was going on around the game, um, you know, it was just, I was a fan like everybody else. I just happened to be wearing a Mets uniform at the time, but I was just sitting there as a as a local guy, a New Yorker, taking it all in like like pretty much everybody else was. And um, it was it was really special, man. You, you just, you know, you get overwhelmed. Um, I think, you know, you see what this country can do, and, and, and even though we have our, you know, we're, we kind of uh, get away from each other a little bit, that was a, a really a, a great time in New York, but not even just New York, but our entire country. You see them just kind of coming together, uh, you know, everyone kind of going through the same emotion as a group. And it was it was a proud time to be a, to be a New Yorker, to be an American. And uh, that whole that game was kind of served as a backdrop and um, just a really neat experience, man. Right. And Bobby Valentine, it was amazing how, you know, I know he's a polarizing figure. And, you know, you either love him or you hate him. And whatever you think of him, I, I really – have to say, you know, he stood up. He stood up, and he he actually managed in a lot of ways between when the tragedy happened and then the the next game. Because during that week, he was out at Chase Stadium and almost directing traffic. It looked like over there. 
Yeah, you know, the whole team was kind of involved in that. There was a lot of opportunity while we were still in New York to help out anywhere we could. There was a, a group of guys, I remember, who kind of split us in half, and half had gone down to ground zero just to, to kind of help out, obviously not help out in the wreckage, but just to kind of, uh, you know, be there, be supportive, talk with people. And then the rest of us had stayed in Shea, and I, I know they showed some pictures during the game tonight on ESPN, um, and just everything that had gone on um, at, at what was going on in the parking lot in Shea, man. It was crazy, just the amount of... Uh, the donations that were coming in, the volunteers were there, and they were using that parking lot as a staging area. Uh, you know, we were all there just helping out, doing whatever we could. Yeah, and uh, I have with me C.J. Nikowski, former Mets pitcher. That was C.J. Nikowski. You could check out C.J. now on MLB Network Radio. I know he does broadcasting for the Texas Rangers. We're not done with our Talking Mets 9-11 tribute. The final look back into the vault. And if you're a Rangers fan, New York hockey Rangers fan, you guys all know John Amarante from the 94 Stanley Cup run, singing the national anthem. Well, he sang the first national anthem, not the night at Shea Stadium, but earlier, that I guess that week, he had sang when the, uh, the Rangers, I believe, for an exhibition game, if I'm not mistaken, came back, and he sang the national anthem, the first national anthem after the tax on 9-11-2001. So uh, to wrap this segment up, and this look back in the vault, now you hear from the late John Amarante. Um, you will know him from the New York Rangers games. He sings the national anthem before the Rangers games. Uh, 1994, geez, that spring I could remember John Amarante all the time. And he's joining us right now to talk about the actual first sporting event after 9-11. It, the, the first regular season sporting event was the Mets-Braves game, but John sang the national anthem for a uh, Rangers-Devils game a couple of days before that, and he's on the line with us. John, pleasure to have you on this Sunday night. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. So uh, give the listeners who obviously have been following the Rangers, have heard you, that was a very special night singing the national anthem for you, being the first one to do that post-9-11. Yes, it certainly was. It was very emotional, highly emotional, as a matter of fact, and I just barely got through singing God Bless America that day. Wow. It was uh, actually it was a game between a uh, preseason game between the Rangers and the Philadelphia Flyers. Okay. I yeah. Thought, I thought it was the I thought it was well, obviously yeah the, the preseason game for the Rangers and it wasn't the biggest crowd but it was a crowd that got very loud from what oh, I Oh, well, I mean they were enormously loud. I mean uh, and then when they started to chant USA 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 I I began to choke up at the end of the song. I mean it was just a tremendously emotional moment. Now, for you, it, there was a connection, because didn't you not work in the towers at one point many, many years ago? Yes, I did. I wow. worked there until 1990. Wow. Uh, I was one of the first tenants there. <laughs> right. You were working for John McMullen, who owned the Houston Astros and also the New Jersey Devils. And yeah, that's right. That's amazing. And, you know, the thing about it, John, is that before 9-11, and we've gotten away a little bit at times now in years since, the National Anthem has been like that thing holding us from the actual game. You get your popcorn, you get your hot dog, and then you stand, you honor, but it's like, come on, get on with it, or it becomes something to make noise to get the crowd revved up for a big playoff game. But it became, I think, at least in my opinion, I want to see what you think, uh, more than that post-9-11, and you kind of started it off with, with your song in that Rangers game. Yes, it did. And then I did the second Yankee game uh, of that season. Uh, when they first came back to play, it was uh, in September also, the end of September, Yankee Stadium. I did that game. Wow. So uh, there were very highly emotional moments. And, you know, it hit home with me, too, because I had a tragedy in my family 
where I lost a child to, right. uh, to a terrible situation, and I could reach out to these people. I knew exactly what they were going through. So it brought back a lot of bad memories. Right, right. On a, on a positive note, you've been doing the anthem in this town for a long time. You started out at Chase Stadium. Do you remember the first time you sang the national anthem at a sporting event? Yeah, the very first one was a Met game. Right. What are you? What are, were you nervous? What? They, tell us what was going through no, your mind. No, I wasn't nervous. I never got nervous. No, it just was a great feeling to walk out on the field and see fifty thousand people out there. I said, "Boy, this is fun. I think I'd love to do it at the Garden." And I got in touch with the Garden, and uh, the rest is history. I've been doing it at the Garden since nineteen eighty. That's what thirty years. Right, thirty years. I mean, you're kind of a, a fixture and. I'll tell you what, John, I mean, it's so, it seems like yesterday I was in high school, but that spring of 94, the Rangers run to the cup, you had the Knicks. <laughs> now, you did the Rangers game. Did you do some Knicks playoff games that year, too? You were... I did, uh, well, in the beginning at the at the Garden, I did everything. I did all the Knicks games, all the Ranger games, all the college games. Right. You know, and then uh, eventually the Knicks uh, decided to go in a different direction. And, uh, I st- you know, I stuck with the Rangers, naturally. And I'm glad I did because I was in a parade up Broadway. Yeah, you were you were part of that. I mean, I always remember people when we would talk about the Rangers and that run. You would start those games off, and like I said, I mean, look, you don't want to dim- diminish the importance of the the country's anthem, but it's almost a way to get the crowd revved up. It's, it's you almost became that that engine, so to speak, to get this thing going. I think it's pretty cool to to think of it in that way. In some well, important. I do. I, I appreciate you bringing that up that way because uh, it, it really was. Right, and and also um, you you were Phil Rizzuto's cannoli guy. You used to bring cannoli <laughs> yes. to Phil. I looked that up. I find things on the internet. <laughs> yeah, I used to bring the cannolis to Rizzuto. One time I surprised him. It was uh, in 1980, also uh, in in Baltimore. Uh, I went down there to sing on his birthday. The, Re- the Yankees had arranged it. So I went down to Baltimore to sing. He almost fell out of the TV booth, Rizzuto, when he saw me walk out on the field. <laughs> and then after I sang, I brought him up a dozen cannolis. He right. really flipped out. That's right. And another another cool fact that I found is that you used to warm up uh, before the uh, the Ranger or Nick games when you were doing the Knicks uh, yeah. in the bathroom, and some of the players right. would uh, try to sing with you. Charles yeah. Oakley, huh? Yeah. Oh, he was a riot, Charlie Oakley. Ch- could Charles sing? Could Charles Oakley sing? Uh, no. He's <laughs> <laughs> he on Twitter. We, we have access to him. We're going to ask him. Charles, we spoke to John Amaranti. He says that you're a great singer. We'll see if we can get him to get on the air and sing the national anthem for us. You know? Yeah, that would be fun. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, before I let you go, what do you got coming out? Do you have a website? Do you have something going on? Let the fans who, who obviously are interested to know what's, what's going on with you. Well, I have, I'm in the process of having a book written, and it's going to be called The, the Anthem Singer. And... Uh, Right now, I uh, collaborated with uh, what uh, uh, another writer who wrote uh, with uh, Roger Bear, and uh, we got together, and uh, we, we we got this book going. But I have one more chapter to finish, and it's a difficult one. It's the final chapter, and it's uh, we hope to get it moving and hopefully get a. Uh, the publisher, which is very difficult. Right, obviously it's 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 a tough situation out there. We got to get you on on. Are you on Facebook? Are you on Twitter? Are you got any of the social media sites that you're on? 
No, I'm not on any of those. Well, you, well, you can get the book. you got to get on there, John. we got to get you interacting with the public and everything like that. I think that. I should, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, if Charles Oakley could be on Twitter, we could get you on Twitter. We could get a reunion of you guys over there. So. Well, that would be funny. <laughs> that would be funny. Well, listen, I know it's a late hour. We, uh, As someone who is a fan of the game as well as, as does this, I mean, I've always enjoyed your work. And Thank it was, you so it's much. Been, it's been a privilege talking to you. And keep in touch, and let's help you get that book publicized when you get it out, all right? Oh, I hope so. All right. Thanks Have a great night, John. That's, you uh, too now. That's John Amarante, the anthem singer. You know him from Rangers uh, fame. Hey. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five, because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G. TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, we're back. I hope this show hit the mark, so to speak. And we had a good balance of baseball. And there was some really important commentary about the current Mets team that I want to put in there. But as far as 9-11, you know, we just can't ignore it. We can't just do a, a show here and ignore it. There is no way this show is at the forefront of any retrospective or anniversary. There's no reason for you to hear any kind of, you know, experience I had because I didn't lose anybody. And it doesn't matter. I'm not... It, it's not about me. It's not about my feelings. It's not. Uh, there's so many more people that are more important in this. But I think as far as the city and the event and what the Mets and Yankees did, they gave us a tasteful event. And they gave us good baseball. And it was about baseball. And yeah, there was a little bit of drama there and sauce there on Sunday night. But you know, it was, I think, a lot of, you know, much to do about nothing. Typical Yankee sensitivity. In an, in an environment where everybody celebrates. But that's another story for another day. They move on. The Mets move on. I have a feeling that the Yankees won't be in the postseason. You know, the odds are the Mets won't be either, so they won't be seeing each other. But who knows? And both teams move on to try to, you know, make their mark in their their respective postseason races. So, you know, that's really it. I'm not going to go on further. My hope is that you enjoyed this. You listened to the retrospective. You got something out of it. We'll try to dust off the vault from some of those earlier shows back you know, 10, I've been doing this since 2007, almost 15 years. So it's not like I don't have, you know, content to share. Is it always relevant? That's a whole different story. You know, you're talking about different eras of Mets and baseball and whatnot. And you heard a couple of uh, conversations maybe in those uh, interviews that were a little stale, you know, about first responder hats and things like that. But I hope you enjoyed it anyway. Uh, of course, you know, we'll be watching, you know, there's obviously maybe emergency shows that we have to do, depending on the news, depending on, I know there's some days off coming up, so maybe we'll pop in during the week, depending on the pennant race and what's going on. And uh, I think one of the big topics that we need to really dive into as we go later into the year is the Mets make their run and whether they make the postseason or not. One of the first and foremost topics, and it's hard for me to even fathom that this would have been a conversation is Javi Baez and his impact on this team down the stretch. And what is the relationship between Baez and the Mets, if any, going forward? He may be, outside of Max Scherzer, the best deadline acquisition. He's certainly probably the best offensive deadline acquisition, maybe better than Chris Bryant and the Giants. And you've seen everything that he can do. And I think we got to really look into this deeper. He's had a huge impact. And I don't think the Mets are where they are without Javi Baez. So that's interesting that 
where he's come in just you know f- five or six short weeks. So anyway, I want to thank everybody for joining me today. Hope you enjoyed the look back to my 10-year anniversary 9-11 show and we looked it back here on the 20-year anniversary. Of course, you could check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, now Amazon Music, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll be back with another podcast pretty soon. Till then, take care, everybody. Yeah.